Good evening, everybody. My name is Kwame Boating. I am an Associate Portfolio Manager at Alden Brown Limited. Uh, but more importantly, I am a UBC Okanagan alumnus. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome everybody here tonight on behalf of UBC alumni to our UBC Dialogues. So give it up for that. Now, I would first like to start the evening off by acknowledging uh, the Sioux Okanagan Nation and their peoples on whose traditional territory we are gathered here tonight. As we begin the evening, uh, let's thank our presenting sponsor, Scotiabank, and our official broadcast and online media sponsor, CBC, for their ongoing support of our UBC Dalek programs here in the Okanagan and the Lower Mainland. Now, I'm really excited to actually be here. It's, it's, um, Krista had sent me a note. So Krista at uh, Alumni UBC, she sent me a note a little while ago about this event. And I, being typical Kwame, I skimmed through the email. And I saw, oh, masculinity. And I saw, oh, OK, she wants me to speak. And so I assumed that she wanted me to be a panelist. And the last time Krista saw me, I had a bigger beard. So, you know, as soon as I saw the email, I sat up a little bit. You know, my chest kind of puffed out, sat up straight. And I was like, yeah, no, this makes sense. Of course, absolutely. I'll come and speak about masculinity. But then I started thinking. I'm like, well, I don't really know much about masculinity. Why would she pick me, of all people, to come and have a discussion about something on the topic of masculinity? So I read the email again. And I, in fact, learned that I was not going to be in that particular function, which was a relief. But then I started thinking. I was like, well, why did I do that? Why did my chest perk up? Why did my, why did my ego get inflated? And then I started thinking, what are my ideas of masculinity? What does all this mean? And then I started thinking, what if my misguided thoughts of masculinity, how is this going to affect my children in the future? And so 45 minutes into my existential crisis, I send Chris back a note. And I say, yeah, for sure, I would love to show up to this event because now I need to be here. Uh, and figure out what exactly is going on when it comes to redefining masculinity. So I'm very, very excited to be here, and I hope you all are as well. At this time, I would like to introduce Zach Kokar, District Vice President of Scotiabank, who, as our presenting sponsor, will introduce tonight's moderators. Please welcome Zach. Thank you, Kwame, and good evening, everyone. I'm thrilled to be here tonight to welcome you to, the all, to you all to the UBC Dialogues. At Scotiabank, investing in our communities has been a focus for 185 years. Our goal has always been to create a better life for our people and our communities we serve. And like UBC Dialogues, we believe in the different ideas and perspectives contribute to a strong and healthy society, one that fosters an inclusive culture and celebrates diversity. We are so proud to be partnering with our friends at Alumni UBC on this fantastic series of events here in Kelowna. Tonight, we're in for a real treat, as we hear from another outstanding lineup of panelists. And, we hear, and it is my pleasure to welcome our moderator for this evening. Chris Walker, originally from Galliano Island off the BC coast, is the host of CBC Radio Day Break South. He has earned his master's degree in journalism from Carleton University and begun his journalism career as a freelance reporter in the Middle East, working at CBC since 2002. He has hosted the CBC Morning Show in Northern BC for three years before making his way south again in 2010. Please join me in welcoming Chris Walker to the stage. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Zach. I'm uh, very happy to be here tonight to 
uh, moderate this important discussion and uh, no doubt more existential crises to come on how we can reshape ideas around masculinity in the 21st century. Um, I put this, this event into our house Google Calendar and my partner and I put the official event name in and my partner went in and changed it all cap letters and just said masculinity is dead. <laughs> and so I came downstairs and and I said, I'm wearing black in mourning. And she said, well, you've got cat hair all over, you, all over you, so that must be the nail in the coffin. I think we can all identify with uh, qualities that have traditionally defined masculinity, right? A puffed-up chest. Strength, contribution, independence, assertiveness, but then also emotional detachment, dominance, and violence. Things that are so entrenched in our culture that they haven't become normalized. They've just been normal forever in, in, in many cultures. But in light of the, the Me Too movement and the increasing understanding of the influence of the patriarchy and rape culture and toxic masculinity and the effects those have on how we live our lives, ideas around what it means to be a man have been questioned. So what would a healthier and more respectful view of masculinity look like? What would it, change to, what would it take to change those attitudes and, and behaviors in our current generation? Kwame, you mentioned your kids' generation, their kids' generation. And how do we start doing that today? So we're very uh, fortunate this evening to be joined by three expert panelists who will share their perspectives with us. Please welcome our panelists to the stage. And let me uh, introduce them from uh, your left to right. Our first panelist is Shiloh St. Cyr. Uh, Shiloh has devoted the past 10 years working to support survivors and advocate for social change to end sexual violence. She's been a researcher, an educator, a community support worker, a youth advocate, and a leader in various government, nonprofit, and academic institutions in the anti-violence field. She holds a master's degree in public health and has worked side, uh, alongside UBC the Provincial Health Services Authority, the Ministry of Child and Family Development, and community agencies to create change and to end rape culture. She's incredibly passionate to have joined UBC Okanagan as the Director of Sexual Violence and Prevention Response Office, where she strives to bring a social justice lens in preventing harm through education efforts and supporting survivors of sexual assault. Please welcome Shiloh St. Cyr. Uh, sitting next to Shiloh, we have Jake Sticka. Jake is the co-founder and executive director of Next Gen Men, which is an organization creating spaces to engage, educate, and empower men and boys in conversations around gender in schools, communities, and workplaces. Jake has earned recognition from Ashoka, the British Council, the Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion, and has uh, spoken as part of the Canadian delegation at the United Nations. Please welcome Jake Sticka. And beside me here is Dr. Bly Frank. Dr. Frank is Dean of the Faculty of Education at UBC and was appointed in 2011. He also serves as Dean of the UBC Okanagan School of Education as well after the Vancouver and Okanagan campus faculties merged in June of 2018. A scholar and advocate for social justice and equity with over four decades working in education, 
Dr. Frank is an experienced educator and administrator who brings a strong commitment to excellence in research, teaching, and academic leadership. Bly has an active research career and is a recognized expert in the field of gender studies with academic interests that include masculinity and the sociology of boys and men's health. He has held major research grants from the Social Science Humanities Research Council of Canada for research in the area of masculinity and schooling. Please welcome Dr. Bly Frank. Just a few comments before we continue about the format of tonight's event. I'll facilitate the conversation on stage, and we'll delve deeper into how we can reshape ideas around masculinity, of course. Following the conversation, uh, I'll turn the floor over to you so that we have a question and answer period lined up where I'll be taking questions from the audience engagement platform. So from the online, uh, the website that you were shown earlier by Kwame, uh, you can put your questions in there. You can also vote on them and sort of upvote them and downvote them. I don't think you can actually downvote them, only upvote <laughs> them. Uh, and the ones that rise to the top, we'll make sure we get those uh, put to our panel. So shall we begin? I'm going to take my more comfortable seat over there. So excuse me. So our first um, question for all of you, and I'm fortunate that you're answering these questions and not me. So... <laughs> What does it be, mean to be a man today? Shall we begin, Dr. Frank, and move this way? Well, thank you. Um, so let me say how pleased I am to be here, first of all. Uh, so I'm going to give a little introduction to where this work came from for me and try to attempt to answer the question. Uh, so uh, 2019, by the way, uh, just so you recognize how old I am, is year 50 of working and teaching. I started teaching in 1969. So I tell you that because uh, in my own teacher education, uh, I was not educated around issues of social justice in any way, shape, or form. So I was teaching grade eight in a rather large, uh, in Nova Scotia, by rather large uh, kind of standard size in Nova Scotia. And I arrived on the first day to find my homeroom, 8A, 8B, 8C, 8D, 8E, 8F, 8G. There I was, G, H, I, J. And classes in those days were streamed by IQ. So uh, this was an interesting kind of uh, comeuppance for me that I note, and I taught G, uh, F, G, H, I, and J. And I noticed, uh, and this was, you know, in some ways really the first time I noticed gender because I said I had no analysis of this whatsoever, uh, that the lower, and I say this in quotes, the stream, the more boys. And then I noticed the lower the stream, the poorer the kids. So I finally began to have an analysis of both gender and class poverty and asked what was going on here. Unless you actually believe that boys are stupider than girls, and I don't, there's something going on, or that poor kids are stupider than rich kids, which I don't believe. So I say that to you because this started 50 years of work for me. It took me back to school to do a master's, 
took me back to school to do a PhD to see what was going on. So I then want to say one more thing. It's not a criticism and it's not answering the question yet, but I want to say this because it sets the tone and introduction of the way I think about this work. I don't want to be overly critical of the notion of the ideas of masculinity, but I'm not actually very, even as an academic, I'm not very interested in the ideas. I'm interested in the practice. Gender is something we all do. It's a set of social practices in which we engage, and masculinity is a set of social practices in which we engage, class-defined, culturally defined, religion defines it, and so on and so on, a pretty complex mix. But it is a set of social practices, and I will hold on to that forever because it has a politic of hope in it. If you actually believe it's a set of practices in which we all engage, then you can change it. So I'm interested in the notion of changing the practice of masculinity. And I'm also interested in the notions of contradiction. So it's very difficult for me to answer what constitutes it, because I'll tell you one more story about teaching. And that is, and I put all of this kind of in quotes to make my point dramatically, the biggest lug in the room in grade eight was also the guy who made sure he looked after the most marginalized kid. So to say that the contradictory practices, and those of us in the room who are teachers or parents, you absolutely know this. The contradictory practices located in a body are really important. So it's not about bad men and good men and so on. It's about practices. Sorry, didn't answer your question. Well, I'm glad Dr. Frank went first, because uh, I'm uh, grossly underqualified to answer that. But uh, in practice, really, what we're trying to do, I think that uh, all of us in this room have some sort of conception in our mind, whether it was role modeled by our father, our grandfather, the cultures we grew up in, the religion we practice, of what it means to be a man. Um, but there really is no singular definition. And within our organization, we use the definition of masculinities. Really, it's a plurality where we are offering greater license to uh, men and boys to be their authentic and individual and unique selves versus trying to fit in some sort of quote-unquote man box. Mm -hmm. okay. Sure. Um, well, I can't speak for what it's feels like to be a man, um, but I really recognize that, you know, since very early on in, in the setting of family, in the setting of, it really you're conditioned in a very young age to perform in a way, you know, and um, even my, um, I have a little nephew and I'm, I've been really trying to shape his um, um, identity around um, broadening outside of that box and feeling comfortable to, to express emotions. Um, but he's scared in, in our society still to like share his ex feelings and experiences um, with people. It's like very closed down. And so um, it, we're still in this, yes, we're in the 21st century, but I still think a lot of men are struggling with this issue. And I think also the more marginalized men are, the more sometimes they have to perform gender in other ways as well to, um, and it really relies on the dominant group in that they have a lot of privilege. 
um, to be able to support each other in shifting that um, expression to broaden it. Yeah. You know, as, as you've all been talking, I've been thinking, you know, it's far easier to, to define, at least in our culture, what a man isn't, right? If, mm -hmm. if you say, well, what does it mean to be a man? That's hard. But in the traditional patriarchal way we have all grown up, mm -hmm. most of us, you know what's not manly. Can any of you talk about why we know that? Well, the thing that's the most, uh, so in the research that I've done with young men, generally between 16 and 20, if you ask them that sort of question, they will say, one might think that they would say that the worst thing you can be is gay. They don't say that. They say the worst thing you can be is anything like a girl. So the sexism woven to the patriarchy. You know, boys in grade two know not to carry their books like this, because that's a sissy. They know how to carry their books like this. Mm -hmm. They know if you look at language, boys don't use lovely. There's a whole language category that boys know, because girls use those words. So anything like a girl is just absolutely no, no. Mm -hmm. Some of the worst insults that men throw at each other are in relation to either sexism or homophobia. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, when we do talk about the patriarchy, we often talk about it in relation to other genders, but even within uh, masculinity itself, there is an existing hierarchy, right? And so if you're not performing kind of that most dominant form, then those are all the put downs and the measures because you might as well not be masculine. Mm -hmm. Should I don't do that? No, I think So d is it necessary? Do, do, do we have to have some definition of masculinity? I mean, is that part of the problem that, we're, that, we're, that we feel like we must somehow define this category? I don't know that defining the category is the problem. For men, it's often about uh, protection. I mean, you know, when I would there again interview a young men, I would ask the question, what does it mean to be a young man your age? And they would say, and this is not to suggest in any way that sports and what I'm going to say are... So I already said, I think it's really important not to think about bad men and good men gets us down a slippery slope that's not helpful. I also, so I want to say this about the categories I'm going to use. Young men, time and time again, would say, well, that's really easy, what it means to be a young man. Sports, so then I want to say I'm not naming sports as bad. Sports, looks, body image, and a woman, heterosexuality. Sports, looks, and a woman, that's what every guy needs to be a young, to be a man. And so the problem, once you start thinking about that in any serious way, is all three of those categories are saturated with violence. Sports is saturated with violence, so I would say, you know, if you did over uh, in the grocery store buying tomatoes what you do in the hockey rink, you'd be in jail for a long time. But it doesn't happen when you do it in the hockey rink. So sports, looks, body image, what men will involve themselves in, in very unhealthy uh, 
uh, practice in order to have a certain body image. And then a woman names heterosexuality. And for 45 years now with the feminist research, we know the level of violence located, and I'm not claiming it's located just in heterosexuality, but if the three pillars of masculinity are also often pillars of violence, I'd suggest we have a problem. And we'll come back to that in, in just a moment. Do you guys have anything to add or should we just dive right into to that? Let's yeah, I, I think the one thing is, I think by removing the term or saying we can't define masculinity is that we then don't critically assess what is masculinity for people to enter into the conversation. So we need a frame of reference. Yeah, I think just saying let's get rid of masculinity because that's the problem. I think we're still going to how we form gender and how we define ourselves and how we practice that every day. Um, and masculinity is just a term we use to, we're starting to deconstruct it. Okay, so let's dive right in, Dr. Frank, to what you were just talking about, because, uh, and, and we'll, we'll get this question, and it's a, a classic, almost a cliche question out of the way, which is, is masculinity's association with violence a question of nature or nurture? Uh, since you were talking about the politic of hope, maybe you could address that, and then we'll, we'll discuss it. So it's often, as you're raising a question that's asked, and you know, my answer to that is I really don't care. <laughs> I mean, I do care, but let's face it. If it is a question of nature, uh, for those of you, and I have some physician friends in the room, we actually know, even if it's neurological, you can change practice. It's not interwoven and ingrained to the point so lots of things that are uh, nature rather than nurture. So my answer would be, of course, that it's both. That's the good academic answer. It's neither. It's both. But of, to my way of thinking, of course it's both. But that doesn't, you know, why people ask that question is because if you say it's nature, it lets us all off the hook. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going there. I guess my addition to that would be questioning what what is natural what makes something natural right like are we comparing ourselves to apes are we comparing ourselves to culture what what is the definition of of natural and um with that in question i don't think that i could confidently answer that it is that so then i'm left to question uh what kind of social norms and constructs uh, support the nurture of it and I do see answers there and so I think that that is uh, something important to to look into and dig further into and um, you know I definitely don't have the, the body of work of uh, Dr. Frank as I'm you know newer along my own path and doing my own learning and unlearning and understanding how I came to be who I was and, and my different lived experiences and when I look at nurture I see a lot of the answers there. Hmm. Yeah, I think this question of nature um, versus, like, even the the concept has been used by dominant groups through history for so long. Like, if even if we look at slavery, um, white supremacists have used this to continue to control groups and to say there's a reason for why this is happening to root it in um, genes. And so I think it's. I think we always have to question that argument and that that dominant group continuously trying to use that genetic argument 
to keep everything um, the way it is. Um, and so, and yes, there's hormones, but they don't, we have prefrontal cortexes and we can, you know, um, make logical decisions if we have urges. You are responsible for your behavior. Um, and I also think, um, you know, yes, we can blame it on hormones, um, but, you know, does that hormones, sexism is built into the way we um, think and how creative and innovative, so even how gender inequity exists in our society, can we blame testosterone for women not being in innovative and creative industries? Like, it's not connected to hormones, like those aspects of the brain. Okay, so changing how we view masculinity, and especially its association with violence, because that's obviously a problem. You know, it, you talk about, Dr. Frank, you talk about sports, and that's a very obvious manifestation of masculinity and violence, right? But there are, Shyla, you mentioned that it's just ingrained. There are millions of little ways that either violence or the threat of violence courses through masculinity. And so how, how, first of all, how aware do you think most men are of that fact? And then how do we start to chip away at that? Should we chip away at that? What should the, how dramatic should the change be? How quickly do we expect it? Charlotte, um, do, do you want to pick that up? And Sorry, can you say the question one more time? So um, how aware do you think men are of the, the small ways that mm-hmm. violence is interwoven with masculinity, let alone the big ways? Mm-hmm. I think we like to think of um, gender-based violence, sexual violence, as something that a few handful of like bad people do. Mm. Um, and we don't think about how all the everyday interactions we do um, normalize um, through like jokes, comment, degrading comments, um, or how they engage in behaviors that condone sexual violence, um, and how those are deeply interconnected. We like to just say like those bad monsters over there, um, and we put them in the media and then we can make them like, oh, it's not us, though. And so it kind of evades responsibility and accountability to the everyday we interact and engage and practice our gender. Um, and I think, men, I think men and a lot of people are, in, are aware of that sexism is a big issue. And I think the Status of Canada just did a study where they um, said 75% of men in Canada believe that sexism and sexual violence is a big issue. I mean, so you have 70, that's three quarters of men believe this is a huge problem in our society. Um, and I think it was 67% um, want to do something about it. And so that to me really reflects that people do think it is a big issue. And I just don't know how much it interconnects with um, the daily ac- activities that we engage with. I wonder who the if you drew a Venn diagram of that, who are the people who think it's a big problem and don't want to do anything about it? <laughs> There's something like 15% of people, of, of men, who think that. So, um, Jake, the question about how we start to chip away at violence and its association with masculinity. You work with young men. What do you hear from them about that? I think it's difficult. Um, I'm involved in a collaborative out of the University of Calgary uh, based on engaging men and boys in the prevention of violence. And uh, essentially, uh, kind of coming 
from that lens is always so difficult because it can kind of create this dichotomy of victims and perpetrators and you know get people's walls up in that sense and i think that it's helpful to go even a little further upstream and have that conversation around gender and masculinity as an entry point into the socialization of violence um, i think it's it's a bit premature sometimes just to jump right into it and so i think for us especially when we we work with the young men, um, our programming is built on three pillars. Uh, pillar of self, health, and others. And it really, our program goes in that consecutive fa uh, fashion because if you don't have a sense of self, self-awareness, self-esteem, self-love, self-acceptance, how can you ever transfer that over to someone else in terms of relationship? Right? And then we jump into health, we talk about mental, physical, and emotional well-being. And then finally we get into others, and that's diversity, inclusion, empathy, and relationships. And that's kind of the structure of our program. And so throughout that, we're unpacking how our own identity of what it is to be a man relates to others. Brian? Uh, so... Uh, let me make a couple of comments again. You know, there's this notion that people have in general that men are not emotional. I find anger a pretty big emotion. <laughs> so this notion that men are not emotional to me just mm -hmm. feels quite ridiculous. I'm sorry, but, you know, men are fairly emotional, particularly around certain displays of it. So let's park that. The second one is uh, awareness is a really interesting thing, and I'm not sure it's quite this simple. But um, men who live their lives on the margins, men of color, gay men, men of challenge and disability, and so on, I think, generally speaking, they're fairly well aware of where they fit in the pecking order of masculinity. Whereas men of privilege may have less awareness, actually, because privilege is a different level of interrogation. So awareness is an interesting thing, and that's not to claim that all men who live their lives somehow in the margins uh, have some great awareness either. So I don't want to be overly deterministic and plot that out. But it's really interesting. So you know, I know, for example, from patients who go in physicians' offices often, and if they're, and I'm not just talking about men, but if they're patients who, in any way, fit a historically marginalized category in our society, they're really literate about reading the office text, I call it. So they will read all the pamphlets to see if they can see themselves. Are they represented in terms of color, in terms of sexuality, and so on? And you know, so a lot of that's about safety and fear. So my point is awareness is a pretty complicated issue depending on what body people live in, right? So I don't know what the third part of your question was. I don't know either anymore. <laughs> it's okay. Um, Charlotte, you, uh, when, when you have men in groups, mm -hmm. and, they're, and, and what's, what's the dynamic like? Support groups is what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. what's this, and, and you know, it's funny. Um, I had a counselor once who suggested I go to a men's support group. And I just, I brushed it off. There's no way. There's no way you'll get me in a room in a circle of men talking about stuff. 
And I'm a pretty, I'm a generally a pretty open kind of guy, but that just was like, that was, it wasn't happening, and it never did happen. So you obviously have people like me who don't even show up, but then for the people who do show up, what's that like? Uh-huh. Um, well, I think I can speak to my experience as I'm working at the Vancouver campus. Um, there was a few initiatives we started with, um, we called it Healthy Masculinities, and so it was like dialogue nights to discuss, bringing out all different genders to explore what is masculinity and toxic masculinity and how can we um, yeah, explore how it's impacting all genders. Um, and we'd often, we'd get like probably 40 people coming out to it, but we had food, there was like places where you could consume alcohol, um, and, but we were getting women, like we would say like 60% of our groups that were about mas- exploring masculinity and women were like, I'm coming out, I want, and um, trans folks as well, like coming out and being like, what is, um, how can we redefine masculinity? Um, and then I was like, okay, I want to do accountability groups and these are all facilitated by men and, and I was like, okay, let's do accountability because we want men, even if they participated in jokes and comments, how do, um, what to say when your friend does something that is sexist and, or if you've engaged in harmful behavior, like come to this group, we'll have this facilitated by um, two male identified folks. And there were low numbers, but, um, and then I thought to think, okay, maybe we're doing this wrong. Like maybe groups are not the place because it is such a barrier of the fear of coming out um, and being vulnerable, because that's one of the, like, one of the, um, I guess, the pillars of masculinity, right? Of It's scary to be vulnerable in groups. So, so at UBC Okanagan, just thinking of, like, okay, I have to re-strategize this and maybe think of, like, being more individualized, like, peer-to-peer, or having a mentor to kind of, how do we reshape this and how to um, change the way um, men engage in sexist, sexist attitudes from yeah, the jokes to the comments to the degrading um, sayings to harmful behaviors and start to like pull each other in and hold each other accountable. And, and I'll ask Jake, I'll ask you this question too, but once that conversation gets going, how natural is it? Hmm. You've been in the groups. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we run a series uh, called Wolfpack uh, in uh, Calgary, Edmonton now, and Toronto. And essentially it's a uh, monthly discussion group where we hold space for conversations men don't traditionally have. And um, we'll pick a topic, we'll invite a couple folks to come and and share a story that relates to the topic with just kind of the underlying question of what does this have to do with being a man today? And so we don't necessarily come at it with like very um, heavy undertones one way or another. So it's a, a significantly reduced kind of barrier to entry. And I think that we find success in those conversations um, in having that really strong facilitation and whether it's myself or or my partners in the other cities, um, role modeling that vulnerability, sharing kind of our own story, our own experiences. And a lot of times it really just takes that one person to take the lead and then someone says, oh yeah, me too, I've had that experience. And so... um, the way that it's set up is, is kind of just an open storytelling in the beginning, but then we break off into small group discussion, and, and that's where I think is really powerful because when you have kind of a larger group, it can be a bit intimidating, but when you have kind of four or five people sitting around you, um, you can really get into a good conversation. And I find that 
it's tough too, um, you know, doing a lot of kind of change and accountability work from a group perspective because um, a lot of that accountability comes from some sort of relationship as well too. And so many uh, women in men's lives do their emotional labor for them. And so I think it's great to empower men who come to groups like this um, with the kind of ability to start facilitating some of these conversations in their own uh, kind of relationships. So I find it's more of like a, you know, the, the evening itself is, is great. It's always a great thing to be a part of. But the, the ripple effect that you hear after the fact mm. of, you know, I talked to my buddy about this or I, 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 I enjoyed this so I brought another guy with me and stuff like that. And I think that helps kind of cascade the conversation. Dr. Frank, would you like to add anything? Yeah, my experience has been that men really want to talk about these things. Interesting. Yeah, and so you should have gone. No. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm all right now, so I have ship and sail. <laughs> but my experience has been that, and it's mostly been with young men, there again, my own research, but uh, they're very open about these. I really appreciate what Shiloh's raised more than once about what I call the ordinary routine every day. So we're not necessarily dealing very successfully with the big stuff. By that, I mean assault and rape and so on. But, you know, it's in a frame that we can at least name it and talk about it and so on. I argue that it's the ordinary, everyday, routine stuff that holds this together. Mm-hmm. And I see it in the workplace. Uh, and it's not just jokes, it's practice there again. So every time, you know, I'm at a meeting, I watch who speaks first, who dominates the territory, and most of the time, and unless you have the self-awareness to close it, there are other people in the room who might want to speak, then so the ordinary really interests me about the practice of masculinity. Hmm. Shiloh, how can women support men to become more aware uh, and to understand the impacts they have. And then I wonder if you could also address that it's not their job, it's, it's ours. Mm-hmm. Could, could you talk about both those things? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I, I think when I'm hearing this, convers- this question right away, I was like, I'm going to reframe that question. <laughs> um, you know, I think, um, yeah, women have been involved in the front line of this issue um, for a long time around gender-based violence and sexual violence. And women of color, particularly, and people from the LBGTQ communities really demanding services in response to um, sexism. So from sexual assault centers to safe homes to all these places where... And now, like, reshifting it to, okay, like, how can we bring men into this and to, help, to be a part of this movement and be a part of this change? Um, because we have, we have the response piece of supporting um, survivors and victims of sexual violence, and now we need to, to stop it from happening. And I think it is men's job because we know that um, you know over 95% of perpetrators are men, and so we can't rest on the shoulders of women of color, of women of. Um, from the LBGQ community that are more at risk of such violence, that it needs to sit with men being involved and calling them to action and be a part of the conversation and, and support those programs, but also yeah, work together to, 
um, call each other in um, when mistakes are made and do better and practice differently. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, would either of you like to, to take that on? The role of women versus the role of men, whose job this is, whether who can support who and, and how? Well, I've never thought it was the job of the victims to, uh, to do the work uh, <laughs> of educating their oppressors, right? I mean, it seems to me to be a very odd kind of approach <laughs> that women should have to do this work, right? I mean, I think the responsibility, as Shallow says, uh, rests fully on the shoulders of men. Uh, uh, that's not to say that women uh, and non-binary people cannot be very supportive of this, but mm -hmm. I think that expecting women to do this work is just misplaced as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I would agree, but I'd also expand maybe on that as uh, part of the work as, as men calling other men in is, is hopefully opening the door so that men can see themselves as victims of this as well, right? Men mm -hmm. are the primary perpetrators of all forms of violence. Three out of four suicides are men. Men experience higher rates of addiction, homelessness, incarceration. So really the status quo, if we look at it at large, is not really working for us either. Mm -hmm. And so questioning um, what that means, right? It's not just happening to, oh, those people over there, those women over there. It's happening to us as well, too. We should talk more about that uh, in, in a little while. Um, it's, we're going to move to uh, your audience questions now. Um, so remember, you can go on the website and ask your own question. There's a green Ask button down there at the bottom. At least it's down there at the bottom of mine. Um, and you can upvote questions as they come along, and there are some really good ones. And the first one with the, the most votes here is uh, kind of a crucial question, and it's this one. Are there any positive aspects to the current definition of masculinity that are worth preserving? Who would like to take that small question on? <laughs> if I could, like, the way that I think about this sometimes in conversation, um, is we do have this conversation about toxic masculinity, mm. right? And um, to uh, what Dr. Frank said about good and bad, it's, it's easy to kind of get into that. Um, but there does exist a discourse right now where uh, traditionally masculine things are um, you know, being downgraded and, and viewed in negative light. Um, but then also traditionally masculine things um, are then becoming not gendered and applied to uh, women and men and you know non-binary trans folks. And so it's kind of like y you can't win one way or another, right? So if, if you can't have those positive parts, right, whether that be work ethic or success or uh, drive, if those can be non-gendered, then what do you get to keep, right? So I think that um, it's, a, it's a really tough question to answer because I don't necessarily think that one or the other is gendered. So I think there are lots of good things, mm -hmm. including many men in this room are nurturing, mm -hmm. caring, giving, thoughtful, so on. So I want to, so no man is any one thing. Mm -hmm. The contradictory experience of 
being, and it's also contextual, so violent in that place and caring in that place. So this is a pretty complicated question, right? So uh -huh. it's not like back to the good and the bad. So there are many, many practices that many men are involved in uh, that we would certainly want to encourage. And then there are many practices that we wouldn't want to encourage mm -hmm. in the same man. Of course. Shiloh? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Bly. There's tons of positive qualities that he spoke about. Um, and and how we practice them in different spaces depending on the group that we're around too is like can really shift and change. And so, yeah, I definitely agree with it. And so what about though, let's complicate that question because Bly, you talked about these things in the same man, in, in the same man. Uh, and I, I'll just use myself as an example because I'm sitting here. But like, you know, I like chopping wood. I like a good hockey fight. You know, I and I and and I, you know, the, so those are two examples of things that are sort of typically masculine. That uh, is there space to be that kind of stereotypical man while also embodying the more accepting, more nurturing. How do you balance those within? Maybe I should have gone to that group therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> How do you balance those within one man? Do you have to uh, purge one whole, you know, side of yourself in order to be woke? Nothing wrong with chopping wood. <laughs> I mean, wood. a good hockey fight I might raise is a different sure. kind of issue. Sure, but I'm not alone. There are probably men in this room who feel the same way, right? Well, then there's an issue right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Violence. I mean, the issue that we've woven here through lots of this conversation is about violence. Mm -hmm. And what Chad was saying, it's not just with men to women. I mean, what men know and the fear that men also live with is the violence of men to men. Mm -hmm. hmm. The pecking order within the category of men. great example of that um, kind of leading to your question is a lot of the kind of leaders in this space right now, you know, whether it be Dwayne The Rock Johnson or Terry Crews or Justin Baldoni, you know, very masculine men. They have a, a lot of privilege in terms of stature, athletic ability, money, you know, success. And because they have those privileges, on the other hand, they're able to espouse some of those uh, more maybe feminine traits or softer side or, or challenge or push those because things. Because no one's going to mess with the rock, right? Exactly, <laughs> right? And so, um, you know, would we as a society that values these traditional uh, masculine traits listen to someone who was, you know, short and uh, unathletic and whatever, right? Like, I, it's, there's a, a license given to uh, certain men, and I definitely exist within that as well. You know, six foot eight, straight white guy, right? Yeah. Doing this work, having these conversations, right? So that's very interesting. But it raises a question about there's a real difference between the use of power as a white, tall, straight, da da da, and the abuse of power. Right. 
And that's a really important concept for masculinity and men about how you use white privilege, how you use masculine privilege rather than abuse it. This kind of goes into our next question from the audience, which is, it was an anonymous question, but and I think of you know, the two examples I provided, which was chopping wood and hockey fights. And where did I learn to like those things? From my father. But the question is, is it only fathers and male figures that influence the way boys define masculinity, or do mothers and certain female figures have an influence as well? High school students will say, boy high school students will say uh, that um, uh, this might have changed somewhat, but that both girls and mothers want a real man. Mm-hmm. They don't want a sissy for a boyfriend. Hmm. Even if he's straight, I mean straight sissies are, I mean I say this in quotes, but straight sissies are, pro- there's a whole thing about sissy phobia, right? And so straight boys who are red as gay are red as sissies. Uh, Girls generally don't want them for boyfriends. Mm -hmm. So that's not to criticize the girls. Mm -hmm. It's to say how this is interwoven, regardless of the sex or gender of the supporter. I mean, there's a lot of support for uh, masculinity across the spectrum. Either of you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think like girls and women and trans folks of how we perform gender is part of the social construct in which we live. So, you know, being taught like this is the person you're supposed to like, these are the qualities you should be looking for. Like we're taught that at a very young age. And so it, it influences the people that we're attracted to. Also, what we're exposed to media mm. and entertainment. You know, we constantly see this person um, these like violent qualities or this like protective qualities or um, to the real man qualities um, put on these really maybe like traditionally attractive men. So then you're, you connect them in your brain, you know, and then you might look for that, for those particular traits or, I don't know, I think it's really to do with also con- the conditioning of girls and women and who we're attracted to and the, how we perform our genders. Um. A story that I often think about with this is uh, I, uh, one weekend a, a good buddy of mine um, has a sock company and he was running a market and uh, I could use a little bit of cash so I, re- I ran the market for him over the weekend and uh, you know was selling all kinds of different socks and there was this little boy and he came up and he pulled this pair of socks and they were like really funky kind of 70s pattern and I, I would say that the dominant color was like turquoise and maybe like a little bit of dark purple and he was like mommy mommy I really want these socks and she said no those are girl colors Mm. and they were freaking socks (laughs) like Mm -hmm. it wasn't a doll it wasn't anything it was something totally inconsequential that when they had shoes on you probably wouldn't even see you've got turquoise on your socks I know (laughs) (laughs) These are next-gen men's socks. <laughs> so here's an example that the boys and the men would talk about. So in rural areas where you have a clothesline, mm. just absolutely, you know, when women do the domestic work of the laundry, going out and hanging his jock strap and his undies and so on on the clothes, not a problem. The man is out hanging her bra on the clothesline, 
and Buddy comes in in the Bronco, boom, and in the house. Right? So, I mean, the most ordinary experiences are so gendered, the mm -hmm. socks, mm -hmm. what clothes, who hangs on the clothesline, right? Domestic labor. And it's still all really entrenched. Mm -hmm. hmm. Okay, um, our next question, uh, and boy, there are good questions, so thank you for these good questions. Uh, this is also anonymous, uh, and it's directed to no one in particular. Uh, if we agree that all humans are emotionally driven, what are the practices we can implement in schools to support healthy expression? Dr. Frank, I feel like this is your bailiwick, probably. <laughs> so away you go. It's just really, yes. Yeah, so there are all kinds of, first of all, you have to have a teaching community that is really aware mm -hmm. of what we're talking about. So at UBC, I think both here in the school, of education in the Okanagan. I was with the B.Ed. candidates all day today, and this is exactly what the faculty here had arranged, was doing a lot of the, th talking about a lot of the things we're talking about. And this is the framework and entry into their program. And I think that we are attempting to do similar things on the Vancouver campus. So unless you have a teaching community that's aware of gendered practices and how you might go about changing those most ordinary practices to normalize the unordinary uh, is the real starting point. So can you do that? I've seen classrooms where teachers are doing that all the time. The problem becomes that children do not live in our classroom. And feminists years ago were really worried and continue to be that they set their boy children up for abuse. So you teach bo young boy children not to engage in dominant masculine practice and they don't live in your classroom, then on playgrounds and school grounds and on the way home and on the bus and so on, they're up for serious doodah. Mm -hmm. So this is a real problem. So it's not just about schools, it's changing parenting and guardian practices. Mm -hmm. Let's take institutions. Let's go down that road. We've heard a lot lately again about one particular institution and abuse. So, you know, these are difficult. To loop in your earlier question, too, about the impact that um, women as caregivers have on this, um, you know, when we think of teaching as a profession, primarily women, right? Um, and I think that, you know, even to Dr. Frank's point, um, you know, taking a step back, uh, you know, when we preach gender equity, as much as we need women in leadership roles and in STEM education, we need men in caregiving roles such as nursing and early childhood education, right? And that's not necessarily going to happen until men are taking paternity leave because when their sons see their fathers as caregivers, it gives them license to then pursue that for themselves. And then we can finally get into those institutions and start unpacking um, some of that programming and, and give uh, some role modeling of healthy masculinity. We have to come in as an after-school program to work with 12 to 14-year-old boys to role model healthier ways of being a man because they don't necessarily have that always. Mm -hmm. Joe? Yeah, and I guess it comes down to how we value those caregiving roles in society. Like, they're not well-paid jobs. They're horribly paid jobs. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, minimum um, wage most yeah. of the time, or if not, just a little bit above, but yeah. yeah. And I think reshifting how we value caregivers in our society will, will change the way who engages in that work. I think that what Charlotte said, so, you know, we've had this whole movement about almost um, active recruiting of men into elementary school teaching. And it's pretty dangerous. I mean, not any man will do. If you want to hire what's known in the, I'll call it dominant, uh, if you want to hire men who have the dominant practices of masculinity, there's a whole bunch going on there. First of all, women are displaced from their jobs that they're used to having. That's a bit of an issue. Uh, secondly, if any man will do and you're hiring dominant practices of masculinity, and you're actually going down the wrong road. Hmm. And we've seen that time and time again because it's based on, oh, we had this literature that said, you know, 23% uh, of all children entering elementary schools in Canada come from one-parent families headed by women. The women might say, yay. Uh, then, uh, then what they all need is a male role model. So then we have this whole push to hire men into elementary schools to teach. I'm not opposed to that, but without a critical analysis of the things we're talking about, I think that's pretty dangerous business. Here's a, and this is not an audience question, this is a question that popped into my head, so forgive me, but you know, at Aretha Franklin's funeral a couple days ago, the preacher stood up and said, you know, well, he, in addition to grabbing Ariana Grunt, uh, also said, um, you know, women can't raise good men. And given that so many kids grow up, so many boys grow up in single parent families headed by women, can can you guys talk about that? Can women raise good men? It's like asking the question, can lesbian mothers raise good boys? I mean, really? Well, right. I mean, surely. <laughs> this has little, you know, sorry, the media's probably, I think your biological bits have little to do with good parenting. <laughs> but there are, but there are, absolutely. <laughs> But there are a lot of people who will say a boy needs a man in his life to learn how to be a man, right? What kind of man? Well, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm just, you know, there, that's, a, that's a view in our world. And we may disagree with it, but I, I just wonder if we could talk more about how we change that view. I think a lot about kind of how I came to be who I came to be. And so this isn't really a great answer for everyone, but it's at least something that I work through. And I think about my grandfather on my, my dad's side, and um, I'm originally from Czechoslovakia, so a uh, communist country. And um, my grandmother on my dad's side uh, was a brilliant woman. She actually was fluent in 11 languages. And at a time where... Uh, folks couldn't travel. She was being sent on diplomatic missions to Paraguay, Kenya, all these like awesome places. And for my grandfather at the time to take a step back and to you know be a primary caregiver to his two sons and um, you know have his kind of career you know lesser than hers, I think uh, was a big part of why my father was who he was and who my father was. Um, you know, still like, you know, I was raised in, in jock culture and in, in those traditional ways, but 
um, you know, he went to work early and left early so he could take me to all my basketball games. He was a very engaged father. He did a lot of uh, equal housework. Um, so I do think to some extent, like, yes, like, young men need male role models. But again, like, what kind of male role models? And that's not to say that women can't do that. But, um, you know, in our work, a lot of, like, who we hire in terms of facilitators is to role model healthier ways of being a man to those young men. And so, again, like, none of that to say that women are incapable, but I think it helps. And then to have that questioning of all of these things and have that conversation. And I think that my grandfather and my father never actually question those things and I know that um, as I've kind of grown into this work and into who I am my dad and I are having some some of the best conversations of our relationship now so take this on add anything yeah I think Bly's answer was exactly (laughs) what I was feeling in that moment (laughs) so um, the you're going to use that I could tell aren't you (laughs) So our next question from the audience is, is this one. What are the parameters for acceptable masculine behaviors? First one to talk gets to take it on. Um, another aspect of our work, so we work in a, a few different contexts. We work in schools, running after school programs. We work in community by running these monthly discussion groups, and then we also work in corporate workplaces. And I see it a lot in those corporate workplaces, um, and it plays into some stereotypes around men and masculinity, is that men are fixers. They want the button to push, the lever to pull, the thing to do to be better, right? They understand from the statistics that you were sharing that things are maybe not so great and that mm-hmm. they could be better or they should be better. So everyone's looking for that that prescription those parameters like what like what are the boundaries right and um, I think they're very relational and they're shifting constantly and so what it comes down to is a set of knowledge skills and attitudes and without going through some work some learning and unlearning and critical thinking and questioning you're just not going to get there like there is no singular definition that I could offer I think for me, it would be nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in the blow people up and shoot people, I mean that as well. <laughs> but, uh, you know, language is a weapon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, student candidates will say, Do I have to think of everything that comes out of my mouth? My answer is yes. <laughs> if you're going to be a professional, in particular, and a teacher, best mm-hmm. just so, you know, I mean violence at the ordinary, everyday level as well how people speak people into existence, and if they're using sexist, racist language and so on, that's a form of violence. Mm -hmm. So my boundary is really clear about Mm -hmm. violence. Yeah, and for me it's also about that respect and it's about dignity and treating each other, um, yeah, with care and compassion and empathy and believing each other. Um, So... Yeah, I think people want like a compass to live with and a box to live in, um, what's socially acceptable. But I think if we live by like and, and analyze and think about why we like what 
watching someone hit someone in hockey like what is the underneath that and to be into look into yourself and see why you gravitate towards games that are violent and all those different things and challenge in every way um, yeah but violence and respect yeah it's interesting it's not that it doesn't sound that complicated really does it when you say it so simply it's complicated <laughs> that's why we're here <laughs> Our next question is, are there ways in which reshaping masculinity could contribute to the efforts of decolonization? It's a good question. Mm -hmm. Dr. Frank? <laughs> well, you know, I think we'd want to look at historical practices about who were the colonizers. Mm -hmm. So my answer to that would be yes, of course. And when we speak of colonization, you know, we colonize, so I certainly want to recognize the colonization of indigenous people. But, you know, colon, if you use it in a broader sense, we colonize all the time as men. We colonize women into domestic spaces. There's nothing wrong with domestic work. That's not what I'm saying. But we colonize women. We colonize other men. So, yes, if we change masculine practice, I think we would very... Uh, astutely be away, uh, be in the practice of decolonization. Charla? Yeah, and I think even masculine roles um, or sexual violence and how those have been used to um, to colonize um, and disrupting gender norms in indigenous communities as a way to control and dominate that um, indigenous communities all across the world. So it's, it's been a form of violence that silences and, um, and there's a legacy of that as well. And so to think about how that is definitely interwoven in other systems of domination, inclusive of colonization and the impacts that's had. complicated I mean I think uh, you know when we use words like like patriarchy and stuff like that it's it's overly simplistic to think it's just gender right it's it's all upheld where like patriarchy is upheld by colonialism capitalism the industrial complex like it's all these really heavy concepts right mm -hmm. and if I'm thinking about even just like the Colin Kaepernick Nike thing right now right like there's masculinity there there's race there there's capitalism there like there's all these constructs and we need to think really critically and in nuanced ways about these things. So we, uh, I think we have time for two more questions. So um, the next one is, uh, and this is another good one, how can we continue to advance women's rights, opportunities and justice without detriment to men? Is it a sort of zero sum game? <laughs> Jake? I think as more and more women enter into kind of the traditional male arenas, whether that be positions of power, influence, breadwinning, etc., um, it's really threatening to those men who have not diversified their own uh, identities beyond the man box, right? And so in that space, maybe there is little real estate for them and they feel that it might be encroaching. But if we look beyond that and we allow ourselves to think of ourselves in different measures where 
um, you know, we can share more of those spaces and take off some of those burdens, um, then I think, you know, there's endless kinds of possibilities. It's really difficult to think of it as a pie. Well, and isn't it interesting mm -hmm. that we just, we, the word is detriment, not an opportunity. There are opportunities yeah. there for men, right? Uh, Dr. Frank, would you like to contribute, weigh in? Well, you know, uh, uh, I think finding ways of giving people who have had less power more power is a really good thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's a zero-sum game, but, you know, just because you know, we're uh, changing practices around hiring or around salaries or around benefits or around health care for women and other marginalized groups doesn't, you know, there's a whole moral panic about the poor <laughs> boys. And, you know, that weaves itself in so many places about how the, the boys and men are losing. And that's a whole public discourse that's quite frightening. So it's, it's there. Yeah, and I think it's about justice. Like, mm -hmm. I think it's about people having, yes, you might not get that job because there's more people competing for opportunity. Um, but that's good um, because um, people who have been marginalized now have um, you know, access to those positions and I think it's deserving and it's time um, and I think that scarcity framework is like very limiting and it creates um, anger and it creates like really violent groups that enact out on it when we stay in that scarcity and I think we have to reshift it that it's justice and it's due um, so, yeah. so we have time for one more and uh, let's do, now there's a tie. What do I do in the event of a tie? Um, what would a genderless society look like? So, <laughs> this is certainly not what I'm interested in. So, you know, we had this whole way back when about this notion of androgynous and making everyone... I think that we've raised this evening there, you know, but I don't think the practices need to be there again, sorry I'm going to use it again, tied to your body bits, right? Gendered practices don't need to line up with. So I, you know, I think there, even with traditional femininity, whatever that is, I think there are huge things to be celebrated. There's a difference between that and oppressing, right? So I think there are huge things to be celebrated around Difference. I'm not used, I have no interest, except for people who want to do it. I mean, if they want to live in androgynous bodies or non-binary bodies, hey, I'm all for it. But, I mean, I'm not the least bit interested in making us all the same and degendering mm -hmm. the society. I think what you hear us talking about is uh, other kinds of things around violence and around practices, not around changing women into men and men into women. No, no, no interest. <laughs> I think one of the uh, most dangerous things that uh, folks can do is say, oh, well, I don't see gender or I don't see color. And I think that that essentially denies the entire lived experience of another person. So I think it's about understanding what those things mean. And, um, you know, I would, I would say the aim is not to have a genderless society, but it is to transform gender from a definition to a description. What do you mean by that? 
right now when we say that someone is a man or a woman, that is loaded with so many different assumptions about what that means versus just, oh, they're a man or a woman, right? And so if mm. we can somehow get over that hump and, you know, take away the baggage of those things, you know, um, and, and it's difficult. Like, if we say someone's tall or short, we make assumptions about them as well, too, right? But um, the more we can do to not box people by their gender, I think the better off we'll be. Shana? Yeah, I understand how we don't want to, like, say, like, all people, because it's, um, because people, all the group, people are treated differently based on their social identity and their experience with systems of oppression. So, yeah, I don't want to remove identities, and I think it's about, yeah, accepting diversity and creating more space for people to express their gender in different ways, um, not to homogenize people, because that's really not, I think, what any of us want. Um, but to create safety in, in spaces to be more different. Um, and for, for gender is a spectrum and to have, and for people, for society to be more safe, to be in the middle and far outside and for all in between, just so that um, rather than having to pick one, you know, that you could be more in between and what feels Maybe right to you. rather than boxes on forms, we could just use a scale. Yeah. <laughs> So before we wrap up, um, and we have, by the way, 40 questions from you that we didn't get to tonight. So I apologize to all 40 of you or more. Uh, so thank you for all the great questions. Let's go, just some final thoughts before we wrap up here from our panelists. Um, Shala, you were the last to speak, so Dr. Frank, we'll start with you and we'll move our way back down this direction. Well, you know, I actually, there again, like what Shiloh was saying about, you know, I think there's something about permission. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, and it's not even that one person has a gendered identity or whatever that language is, but, you know, the permission is that in one situation, this has already been raised, but in one situation, uh, so I don't want to be overly academic about this. Identities are constructed in relation mm -hmm. and in context. So people don't have an identity, just like they don't have a gender. It's constructed. So what I was saying along before about, you know, the kid on parents' night is quite a different kid with a parent than with a teacher and so on. So it's about permission of allowing people to be in those very different spaces in different contexts and different times. Mm -hmm. So there's something about permission, and a lot of people don't have permission. And if they get outside the box, they're going to suffer the consequences. Mm -hmm. And we know that around abuse. You know, the suicide remark is that lots of people ask questions about when someone, a young person in particular, and a boy in particular, commits suicide, they ask questions about his sexuality. And there again, I will argue that it's often about the pecking order in gender that the boy is suffering the social consequences of not measuring up, mm. not necessarily anything to do with sexuality. Mm. Jake? Yeah, I, I would add to that too. Um, you know, when we talk about the high rates of suicide, that's of completion. Women also attempt uh, suicide at uh, similar rates 
Um, but I, I do believe that part of the reason why men complete more is because they're performing masculinity because what could be weaker than failing and trying to take your own life, right? And so, uh, like, masculinity is, is deeply rooted and I think that we need to question it. And I guess my final statement would be, you know, um, especially to the men in the room is to, um, you know, create spaces with um, your peers so you can have real and authentic and vulnerable and emotional conversations about stuff you're going through and, um, you know, how, how those relationships uh, manifest, whether those be work relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, familial. Um, I just think it's really important to um, be part of the conversation. I think that too many people shy away from it. Mm-hmm. Charla? Well, I'm going to do a shameless plug because um, <laughs> I have you all in the room. Um, but. And this is what um, the SV Pro, the Sexual Violence Prevention Response Office, is about. It's about people joining and getting involved, um, especially men, to you know help facilitate groups and try to change and shift culture within the campus and beyond around um, yeah changing the way we think about gender and violence and kind of um, looking inward to where how sexism impacts um, us all. So. Yeah, you can contact me for more. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could answer all 40 questions, uh, but I, we can't. So could you please join me in thanking our panelists?